So welcome to a nighttime nose. I don't know when you are listening to this. Uh, you could be listening to it, well, at any time, really. Um, but we are doing this live at 8 p.m. on uh, Thursday night before the Oscars because we just feel like, you know, the Oscars are kind of a nighttime thing. We want to have kind of a nighttime feeling here with our weekly nose panel. And also joining the panel this week is Michael Stolberg because Michael Stolberg has to be at everything. Uh, so it's great to have Michael here. Uh, our other panelists tonight are Tom Breen, film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Deep Focus. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is entertainment director at Bridge Street Live in Collinsville, Connecticut. Rand Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal and writes uh, uh, in the the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. We should say that Rand has reviewed a lot of movies uh, for Commonweal over the years. That's especially relevant tonight as we get ready to talk about the 90th Academy Awards. So here's my theory to begin with. Um, and I'll start with you on this, Tom. Well, it's not even a theory. It's just sort of – I sort of wonder where drama and agitation can come from this year. It seems like obviously there still could be some Time's Up, Me Too stuff that could happen. But other than that, like the movies all seem pretty laudable and credible. There aren't you know horribly fraudulent movies or like dreadful performances or – I don't know. It seems like I have a contentment about the movies this year that I typically don't have but it could be just me. Yeah, I think that this is a particularly impressive slate of Best Picture nominees as well. Um, I would say maybe this isn't a potential source of agitation, but what I feel going into this year's Academy Awards is the feeling of incredible irrelevance that this, not just this night, but even these movies, which I really love. And I really think that a lot of the, especially movies like Lady Bird that have just blown up in terms of critical and popular uh, appeal, I, I really love. But coming in the wake of Black Panther, that seems to be the most important movie event of like the yes. decade. It almost seems, you know, so not that, you know, every single conversation about movies can't be about Black Panther, but I almost wonder if people will be even less interested in the spectacle of the Oscars, considering how incredibly interested they are in something they've never seen before, which is this, uh, you know, positive kind of techno-utopia of Wakanda. Well, I, I think now you have to have conversations about Black Panther and Red Sparrow, right? Is that what it's called? Red Sparrow? Jennifer Lawrence. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes, I mean, not having the name of an animal in a color, uh, it's a big mistake right now. But well, let's just talk a little. You know, it does seem as though, um, and Rand, I'll start out with you on this one. If there's something people are kind of gnashing their teeth a little bit about, it's three billboards uh, outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, you know, it, it's a movie that could conceivably, out of a field of nine movies, win just because a lot of movies have chances to win. Um, but it's also a movie that people have different kinds of problems with, too. Where did you come out on this? Do you have a problem with three billboards? So, Would you be uh, upset if three billboards was this year's best picture? Um, so let me preface my answer just by saying that, like you I and, and like Tom, I, I like this year's crop of films, but I, there's there's not really a single one that I'm completely crazy about. When you when you're reviewing something, books, movies, you you really hope to uh, very much like love something, or or really dislike it. You know, you you sort of want a solid platform to stand on one way or another. And if you find yourself in in the wishy washy middle of where, yeah, you know, I pretty much like that, um, it's it's not necessarily a satisfying place to be. That's how I am with almost all of the movies, uh, and the only one that um, that I really don't want to win is Three Billboards, um, and. Uh, 
you know, I, I if, if we're going to talk about that right away, you know, I'll I'll just uh, kick it off by saying, I think the film's a big mess. I think it's a big, hot, steaming, <laughs> sparking, uh, violent, um, sardonic, serious mess, and uh, and and I, I I disliked it a lot, and I I think my my view of the of the films. <clears throat> as a group are that there are some that are so clearly what they are that, that announce their in an in almost staid and straightforward way and I'm thinking about The Post um, and Darkest Hour like you know from the first two minutes of these movies exactly what you're going to get I don't think that redounds to their credit and then there are other films like The Shape of Water or Three Billboards where you're not at all sure what mixed what interesting admixtures uh, or get out or mashups of different genres you're getting uh, those kinds of films are inherently more interesting I think and it becomes a question and I would say with I, Tonya also not a best picture but a bunch of nominations with Get Out and with three billboards and the shape of water, you have films that are aiming at things that are way less clear from the get-go. I think those films that I just mentioned succeed in different measures. To my mind, three billboards succeeds the least of all of them. All right. Well, so they, not that you watch the Oscars anyway, as we found out before we went on the air. But if they wanted to upset you, they could just open the envelope and go it. And the best picture winner is three billboards. Out. No, sorry, sorry, it's not that one. It's Get Out. So I can't remember whether you've seen this one. That one. Uh, I know Rebecca that you three billboards. Three billboards. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I did see it. So uh, while you formulate your thoughts about it, we're going to play a little clip. You're going to hear Woody Harrelson. For people who haven't seen the movie, this won't spoil anything. Um, Woody Harrelson is kind of a beleaguered uh, sheriff. Uh, and uh, Frances McDormand is a grieving mother. She's the one who's put up the billboards demanding that the sheriff do something to find out who uh, murdered her daughter. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now there ain't too much more we can do could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby that's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's definitely civil rights laws prevents that. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. All right, so Rebecca Castellani, where do you come down on this? Will you be upset if this is the best picture? No, okay. I won't. Um, I feel, I agree with everyone else. This has been a really wonderful year of movies. There's been really everything I've seen that's been nominated. I've enjoyed to varying degrees. And I agree with Rand's point. This does seem to be a year where you're getting these films that are really trying to impact you more after you leave the theater than when you're actually sitting through the film itself. But I would say that a film like Shape of Water, I knew exactly what that movie was going in. It's a fairy tale. It engages all the fairy tale tropes down to a human creature having an affair with a beast. I mean, it, it was what it appeared to be 
for me from beginning to end, whereas Three Billboards certainly had its flaws, certainly was heavy-handed in certain elements, especially their treatment of race in the movie was flawed. But I thought about it after. I continue to think about it now. And I think, to me, in a year of great films, the films that have stuck with me and made me think are the ones that I'm ultimately going to decide are the better films than something like Shape of Water, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I wouldn't be mad if it won Best Picture. But I haven't given it much thought since I finished the film, whereas films like uh, Three Billboards and Call Me By Your Name, though I don't think they'll, they're will they the best films in the crap, they certainly are the ones that have made me think the most. And then this year for me, that's really what I'm kind of going on for my favorites. Yeah, with Shape of Water, I love Shape of Water too. But you're, certain, you're certainly, you, as you say, you're never in any doubt no. about what you're supposed to think. And they've got kind of an adorable, aging, hair-obsessed gay sidekick and an adorable black woman sidekick. It's got a moral. And, and a really, really bad villain. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, there's just this, you know, they're just kind of holding your head and saying, look, look at this movie. And, and the, we'll the ones I enjoyed were the ones that were more ambiguous, tread in the middle, stuff like The Florida Project and Call Me By Your Name. They just, at the time when I watched both movies, I wasn't necessarily blown away during them, but it was the work that was done after where I was thinking about it and having conversations that to me is most valuable in film right now in this current moment. So, Tom, I'm not sure I know where you come down on three billboards. One thing that I want to say about three billboards is, and I think I'm kind of of Rand's mind about this, and it's sort of a Martin McDonough problem that I have anyway, the playwright and director of Martin McDonough. He tends to just throw the, everything but plus the kitchen sink at you. And, and that's the feeling. Like why is one of the cops like a really – why is the Sam Rockwell cop a horrible racist? Well, I don't know because let's have one of the cops be a horrible <laughs> racist. You know, Why does somebody get firebombed? I don't know. Let's have somebody throw firebombs. You know? I mean I don't think anything happens in any kind of organic way. It's just like I feel like, the, like there's a writer's room where they're like, well, what are we going to do this week? Yeah, I – so – I think that an instructive comparison for Three Billboards and why it really doesn't work for me is why a movie like Fargo, uh, the Coen Brothers kind of mid-1990s movie, also starring Frances McDormand um, as uh, you know, not, not someone seeking out uh, justice for a wronged loved one, uh, but more trying to unravel this crime in this kind of sleepy uh, and uh, kind of snow-covered and, yes, equally uh, maybe quirky and strange and pathetic environment, as Martin McDonough is trying to conjure in Three Billboards. But there's a key difference between the two. And I think that Wesley Morris uh, at The New York Times uh, kind of nailed it when he wrote his screed against this movie. And he said that McDonough wields a certain careless virtuosity with this movie. And I think that that's kind of that's exactly what is wrong with this movie and what is so right about the relatively subdued nature of a movie like Fargo. If you remember that maybe the, the one of the, the climaxes of Three Billboards sees Sam Rockwell's uh, racist and soon-to-be-redeemed uh, small-town cop uh, kick his way into a local advertisement agency and then march up the stairs all in one long, unbroken take. We are talking about Scorsese earlier. This is a clearly uh, kind of Scorsese-style, goodfellas, you know, not unflinching look into the, the mayhem of this character's life. And we see him do some pretty terrible things. It is an exhilarating moment. It's a kind of terrifying moment. And it's played absolutely and terribly for laughs. I I mean, this is a character who we're supposed to, uh, you know, be a little put off by. But ultimately, this is a comedic and almost heroic gesture. And if any, if you remember any scenes in the movie of Fargo, whether it be, you know, there are some truly strange and sadistic and potentially, uh, you know, uh, 
things that would be on this level three billboards, like someone ending up in a wood chipper, for example, <laughs> or, or uh, you know, a long lost uh, college uh, you know classmate coming back and trying to woo Francis McDormand. But there's this under you know this core of empathy uh, in the Coen Brothers quirk that is completely lacking from this this facade uh, of three billboards. There's also when you watch Fargo, there's no doubt from beginning to end that you're contained within a world of irony that, that operates uh, in, in, a, in a kind of consistent way, enveloping you in a certain tone that, that you identify with the Coen brothers. And that tone is present in their movies in greater or lesser degrees. This movie, which seems sort of like Coen brothers with some Tarantino ladled over it, you know, or, or vice versa, has Frances McDormand, she has a face that you, you just want to look at all the time. And it's deployed in a particular and almost iconic way in this film. It's like a Walker Evans photograph. And you see in her face, by, you know, and the subject matter, Tom, as you sum it up, it's very serious. This is, a, this, is a, this is a film about a woman whose daughter is raped and murdered. And she believes that the investigation is being bungled by an inept police force. Um, and she's very, very angry about it. And when you see her face in that sort of iconic um, mode of inner grief and rage that's highly combustible, it also suggests a, a kind of capacity for a redemption, for coming to terms with grief, all this like basically serious stuff. And, and, and the capacity for that kind of seriousness is in the film. But um, at the same time, it has these scenes where, you know, I don't think this is much of a spoiler. She shows up the, at the high school and she gets some guff from some kids and she kicks this one kid like right in the groin. So it's Walker Evans, you know, becomes Charles Bronson. Right. I mean, the violence is used as the, the narrative as opposed to punctuation within the narrative. And I don't like that very much. Well, I don't want us to spend uh, all night talking about three billboards. Um, although I just maybe would be interested to go around the table and just sort of say, well, uh, is there a movie that you would be very unhappy, Rebecca, if it won, or very happy if it won? Do you do you have a strong rooting interest among the Best Picture nominees? I really don't have one single picture that I would be overjoyed to see win. I mean, the one that I would be overjoyed I don't think will win because of the Academy, and that is Get Out. I, I would be thrilled if that won. I just don't really see that happening. Although um, the oddsmakers are putting it kind of in third, really? third place these days. Well, that would be great. So, yeah, that'll be my one that I, I would really put my my hopes behind Get Out. How about you, Tom? I, I would be quite unhappy if The Post won. I, yeah, I, I, I thought that that uh, was a... In, an incredibly uh, kind of cynical and also uh, kind of anti-populist movie, a movie that is is kind of shows how important it is that categorically good people continue to act good to protect the rest of us. It's kind of everything that I don't aspire to be in journalism. Um, I, I would be quite upset if that movie won. I think that considering how strong a visceral reaction I had to Lady Bird while watching it in the theater, it's probably the only movie on this list and maybe the only one all year that I both actually laughed and cried during the movie. I think that for that type of a movie and for such a small movie, such a specific movie about a young girl growing up in Sacramento, California and longing for the sophistication of the big city only to realize that, you know, she has everything she needs in her backyard. You know, it's such a common storyline and yet rendered so perfectly that I think, you know, just for the sake of recognizing a perfect example of a genre of the teen coming of age comedy, 
I would be thrilled that if Lady Bird won. Yeah, I, I would be unhappy if the – I would be sort of unhappy if the Post won. It's sort of the movie that I dislike the most in the field, although I was saying as we were emailing around about this, the Post is vastly superior to a lot of movies that got nominated you know, in, in other years. I mean the worst movie in this field I think is the Post and it's still uh, a pretty good movie. I pointed out to Rand's shock that American Sniper had been like a Best Picture nominee. The same years that – I'm now blanking the name of that horrible Miles Teller uh, drum. Get out of here. Whiplash. Whiplash. I liked Whiplash. I liked Whiplash, too. (laughs) And may I just point out, that was the the same year that uh, The Imitation Game and The Theory of Everything came out. Can't we rag on those movies? Those were... Those so, so the, so the post. I, I think the post is meretricious, but maybe uh, only compared to some of the other much more praiseworthy movies. Rand, where do you come out on, on this? You've already said which movie you don't want to see. Right, and and um, I, I don't think that the post or or Darkest Hour uh, deserve to win. Those two films share um, a, a quality that, while I I very much enjoyed watching them, and I think Gary Oldman should win and will win for for best best actor, but. Both those films seemed too too pat to me and intent upon um, uh, turning away from the unruliness of of all sorts of human situations in order to tie things up in a neat package to present us a civic, political, or historical lesson that is going to, in some obscure way, be a feel-good kind of thing. There's a there's a um, a problem in, in Darkest Hour. You remember the scene right before Churchill goes to Parliament to deliver this rousing oratory, the "We'll fight them on the beaches" speech. He jumps out of his limousine and 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 goes into the subway. Mm. He's being pressured um, to to sue for to seek peace terms with with Hitler. This is a low moment in the war at the time of Dunkirk. He doesn't want to do it, and he goes into the subway and canvasses a group of astounded uh, Londoners and asks them whether what Britain should do and they all say fight fight and then he he rushes back uh, leaving them there uh, agape and he goes and gives this this we'll fight them on the beach a speech well this is totally fabricated it never happened the screenwriter has has kind of finessed this by saying well it's it's the it's in the spirit of Churchill <laughs> well the problem is it, it uses this 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 fabricated uh, 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 you know visit with London London's best comedy um, as a, as a, to frame and contextualize an actual uh, one of the one of the most famous acts of oratory by any statesman in, in modern times. Well, why? You know, to make the story fit together, to make it better, to make it to make it exciting for us. And so I I, I don't like that impulse in 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 the in that movie. All right, um, you've gotten away th- you've yeah. gotten rid of three of them. Anyway, you have uh, to pick one that so you really my want. I would I'm happy with Shape of Water, but I consider it a, a watered down version, as it were, of Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Del Toro's great, great masterpiece. To me, one of the one of the best films of recent decades. I like The Shape of Water. It's it's this it's a similar kind of magical realism put to some similar purposes. And I and and I liked it a lot. It's visually beautiful. Uh, I, this I I think this if. If I didn't want to give the award for cinematography to Roger Deakins because he's 0 for 14, 0 for 13, I would give it to Dan Lawson for, uh, for, for The Shape of Water. I'd also be happy with Get Out. I think it should win um, uh, original screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I hope it does. I, I, I gather it's not going to win um, the best, best picture. No, people are not clear about that at all, that it is given, being given a chance of sneaking in. But I think, I think that – it's Particularly in a year, as Tom was pointing out, people yes. are very excited about Black Panther yes. right now. Right, let me get them excited. About Get <laughs> it's going to be like a reverse, uh, <laughs> reverse coattail action on Black Panther. But I, but I think in the context of some things we said about three billboards, that Get Out succeeds in in doing some of the kinds of things in terms of genre mixing. 
um, that the three billboards, you know, doesn't do. Can I just sneak it very quickly? Yeah. The nomination for Get Out that I am happiest to see mm. is the Best Actor nomination for Daniel Kaluuya yes. because I think that it is kind of unheard of for uh, a um, a lead in a horror slash comedy movie that is, among many other things, you know, the satire about kind of white liberal smugness to be to be nominated alongside the likes of, you know, I think that Daniel Day Lewis is fantastic in Phantom Thread, but that's the type of performance that I think the Academy usually rewards. These are very, you know, serious, heavy, very put upon, dramatic roles. Uh, th- there is, you know. Comedy and horror are often dismissed as kind of reactive, uh, as you know, these are come more naturally to people and therefore should not be rewarded as the great kind of theatricality of the Daniel Day Lewis's of the world. I think Daniel Kaluuya, if you think of one image, you know, beyond the sunken place, maybe one person's image in the get out, it is Daniel Kaluuya's face, which is so tied to the sunken place, his eyes wide and red and, and watering as he's about to fall into this, you know, inconsolable state. So way to go, Daniel Kaluuya, for getting that. Yeah, I, I mean that, that's another one where Black Panther could. I mean, I, I, it feels like Gary Oldman has got that one. Although the fact that he's got a domestic abuse problem, I, who knows whether Academy voters know about that or care about that, uh, or, and it's an allegation anyway. I don't know. I mean, with the actor ones, it's, it's a, a little harder to tell. But it did feel for a while like Oldman had the whole thing locked up. I haven't seen Darkest Hour, so I can't comment really on that. I would like to see it go to Daniel just because exactly what Tom said. I mean, that shot of his face and the acting he did without speaking a word. It's similar to, you know, the end of Call Me By Your Name when you have that still shot of Timothy just acting his face off. It's that same... Like also, that fly is also that up fly for a supporting actor. Should have gotten the best supporting actor. Something, something for that fly. Why well, they do nothing for that fly? Unfair. That fly gave so much. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back. Uh, we're talking about the Oscars here live on Thursday night. And the Academy Award for Good Times goes to you. Yeah, the Academy. I want to go where culture is, like How New in the York, world did I raise such a or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom, you can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice. The way enough. that you work, or the or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird, like Christine. you said you would. Just you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. <laughs> All right, so that, of course, is from Lady Bird. We're here talking about the Oscars uh, with Tom Breen, Rand Richards-Cooper, uh, and Rebecca Castellani. Uh, Rebecca um, thought you were, you were actually hearing one of the people nominated for Best Actress and one of the people nominated for Best Supporting Actress. But I'm going to give you the Best uh, Actress category. I know you have some uh, very specific thoughts about that performance. But uh, Saoirse Ronan is up against Sally Hawkins for Shape of Water, the aforementioned Frances McDormand, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, and Mary Streep for the post. So my feelings on this are I thought Sally Hawkins was incredible. I have never seen her in the way she appears in this film. It was completely transformed my whole opinion of Sally Hawkins. I don't think before seeing that movie I would have said Sally Hawkins is sexy. Mm-hmm. I certainly feel differently now. Yep. It's confusing, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen Artania, so I can't speak to Margot Robbie, though I have across the board sort of found her her choice is a little one note. Um Saoirse Ronan, for me, is the pick. I 
really, Lady Bird was tough for me. I really, really wanted to love it as much as everyone else did, but it, and I overuse this word, it almost triggered me too much because my mom and I had a relationship that was very similar to this, very fraught, very dramatic. My grandmother saw only two minutes of the trailer and said, oh, yes. Yes, that gives me flashbacks to you and your mother. So from, you know, I went to girl school. So from down to the uniform to Crash by the Dave Matthews Band, that just hit a little too close to home for me as a young white girl. Wait a minute, would drama. you be in the same position as Lady Bird defending Crash by the Dave Matthews no, Band? No, okay, I would have been in the Timothy. It's reassuring. Timothy, my love. Yeah. Um, I'm more in his camp of it. But yeah, it, it was one of those movies that I think was absolutely defined by Saoirse Ronan, uh, and for that reason, I really do hope she wins Best Actress. I don't necessarily think that the film deserves Best Picture, though I love Greta Gerwig. I would like to see her win Best Director, but Saoirse Ronan... Which would really be something. She's in her early 30s, yes. uh, and, uh, and there's a whole bunch of people who are big players in in this Oscars who are like in their late 80s, like Christopher Plummer and the, yes. that director who's profiled in, in, in Faces Places, and James Ivory is up for a screenplay writing award, but then you have all these directors, like, yeah. you know, Get Out and... and Jordan and Peele and Greta Gerwig would both, be both my two 30s. hopes. Both of, in their 30s. But so, Greta Gerwig, for me, would edge out Jordan Peele just for the sake of what she's done with Saoirse Ronan and a character, and, you know, she is such a an Irish rose, and to turn her into this Sacramento, gritty American youth and, and to buttress that with the way it's filmed and executed, I thought was just brilliant directing on Gerwig's part and brilliant acting on Saoirse's. Tom Breen, got a best actress you, so or, what, or an actress you want to talk about? What I, what I love so much about that clip that you played leading into the segment, mm-hmm. uh, of which is the opening sequence, if anyone hasn't seen Lady Bird, of uh, driving through the end of a co- uh, co- college tour of California, daughter and mom, uh, and they're fighting. They've just listened to The Grapes of Wrath on audio <laughs> tape. Remember? Which is a great and, touch. And it culminates, as you can probably tell with the scream of Laurie Metcalf, that the daughter throws herself from this moving vehicle in protest, in protest of the mom's controlling this. And I think what's so perfect about that scene and what's so great about this performance is that that is by far the biggest that this movie gets. Yes. If it was constantly characters throwing themselves out of moving vehicles, we'd be looking at a three billboards type situation, yeah. right? This I mean, would in the be... trailer, it seems like that's the climax of the film. And when it opens with that, I was completely shocked. And it's such, right, it's such a surprise and engaging uh, kind of taste of the movie. It's so, it's so deceptive because what we ultimately get is yes, a mo- you know Sacramento presented through the fantastic delusions of this young woman. But what we learn is that Sacramento cannot even you know even the fantastic delusions of this young girl cannot turn Sacramento into anything <laughs> like particularly appealing until the very end of the movie when we realize how perfect a fit you know how at one with the environment with her family with her mom's experience of the world this character has been. I think that's what Saoirse Ronan is able to do in presenting this kind of, you know, Timothy Chalamet, if he's the embodiment of precociousness. Saoirse Ronan does that without shoving it in your face. So are you team Saoirse for the Oscars? Yeah. All right. Rand, how about you? I also am, and I just would uh, remind and redirect viewers to, uh, uh, to the film Brooklyn of a couple oh. of years ago, where she plays an Irish immigrant in the 1950s, and uh, to see the same actress doing very different roles, and particularly in very different time frames and places, highlights um, her, her, her flexible genius um, as an actress. But I, I also would like to give a, a plug, since we're on this film, for Laurie Metcalf, who mm. we heard in that in that mm-hmm. clip, uh, for for best supporting actress, um, it it it's a it's a, really a heartbreaking uh, performance of an embittered mother who deeply deeply loves her daughter, but whose own life has has gone awry in, in a way, and uh, and 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 she's 
she's envious of and angry at her daughter's youth and the fact that her daughter has prospects of life in front of her and the clash between her deep love of her daughter and, and her bitter dissatisfaction with her own life um, placed this actress at a, at, a, at, a, at a really remarkable place. And there's a, there's a scene, if you see the movie, when, when they go to the airport that, uh, that, uh, and she refuses to see her daughter off initially. And it, it's, it's just a heartbreaking scene. Yeah. I, it's sort of weird the way the um, supporting actress category has these kind of bitter, angry performances in them. I really love Laurie Metcalf. I would love to see her get that uh, award. Um, Allison Janney is, I think, considered the front runner for, I think, a much more over the top, less subtle and sort of less human, even though I, mean, I know it's heavily based uh, on Tanya Harding's real mother. But I, I, I just think it's like it's too much. Uh, and I also love Leslie Manville in uh, uh, in Phantom Thread too. Also, kind of an another sense. bitten down it was, role. It was sort of hard to tell exactly what's going on. I, I feel like that character has this whole other life that we don't know about. Isn't that great? You're, that's right. I mean, she would be getting the award for essentially keeping everything hidden. Right. Yeah, exactly. She's hiding everything about that. I'm a big fan of Thread Fan. I, I, I know it won't win any uh, major awards or anything like that, but I would be happy if it did. I think ultimately of the movies that I saw this year, it's the one that I'm – or at least among the nominees. It's the one I'm the most eager to see again. Like I can't wait to watch Phantom Thread again. Kong, can I just suggest that a, a really good pairing of films for people to watch that they haven't seen it is to watch Lady Bird together with Call Me By Your Name. The, the clip we just heard, the, the daughter in Lady Bird is saying, I want to be where culture is, which is – which is certainly not Sacramento, California. Well, Call Me By Your Name is set absolutely where culture <laughs> is. And these two films are, are both very close studies of two American families. And taken together, they really provide a kind of miniature sociology of the extremes of the American family. Lady Bird is about a, a family barely hanging on to the middle class and all of the stresses, financial, economic, and otherwise, uh, and a stifling provincialism. Call Me By Your Name is about this American family living in, in Italy in the 1980s, and they're, and they're academics, they're professors, they're writers, they speak multiple languages, they, they're Americans, but they move effortlessly from one European language to another, and they have the means and leisure to, it's the to, 80s. To, to, <laughs> to, to, to just enjoy everything. It's, it's, it's about this languorous summer of civilization and Sex and, and both and teenagers love. are bored out of their minds uh, in, in each location. So um, all of you and I didn't. I feel guilt. I have guilt. I have Florida Project guilt. Guilt. Uh, I mean, a lot of people over the course of the year told me. I mean, David Edelstein really regards this as the best movie of the year. The Academy could have nominated ten. They're allowed to do that. They nominated nine. They didn't nominate the Florida Project. Um, and an awful lot of people, including I think well, the people sitting around me right now, Rebecca. I know you uh, made a point of, of seeing this uh, before the show. Yeah, last night I was faced with watching either The Darkest Hour, uh, Blade Runner. 2049, 448, 49, 49. Yeah. or The Florida Project. And I watched the previews for all three. This is at 9 o'clock and decided the one least likely to put me to sleep was The Florida Project. And I'm very glad I made that choice. I was absolutely riveted. It's hard when I'm watching a movie at home not to get distracted or find my mind wandering. Whereas when I see something in a, a theater, I'm pretty focused. But I was absolutely couldn't tear myself away from the screen. It, Do you think you could just – this might be a movie that people don't exactly know what sure. it's about. And I know it's not a plot-heavy movie. It's hard to describe. Yeah. So, I mean, this, the most simple reductive the way to describe it is it's about a six-year-old girl and her mother, who I would guess is probably 20, 21 – well, she's got to be about 21, 21, 22 um, – living in a motel on the outskirts of Disney World, so somewhere on a highway in Orlando. And it's basically 
the movie alternates between the perspective of this little girl who's very precocious. She's got a bad mouth on her. She's sassy. She gets herself into all sorts of trouble, including burning down adjacent apartment buildings and all sorts of crazy things. So it, it, in one way, you're dealing with this very innocent perspective that is in many ways this young girl is forced to confront some very adult situations, but she's still attending it to this you know, very sweet, innocent six-year-old perspective. And then you're also looking at the adults surrounding them, which is Willem Dafoe's character, Bobby, who's the uh, the manager of the motel who means well. He wants to fix everything. He physically spends most of the movie fixing things up around the motel. And then you can see he's got this interest in the characters that live there. He's still, you know, got to conform to his boss who comes and doesn't really care about the interpersonal dynamics of the paying customers. So, I mean, it's really this small microcosm that I think in a way is a larger metaphor for a, a large section of America and this idea that there are a lot of people that aren't given the access to, you know, the sort of culture we're talking about. Even Lady Bird comes off incredibly privileged and compared to a movie like mm -hmm. The Florida Project, and we talk about Lady Bird being in this small world. And you you watch a movie like The Florida Project, and it kind of undermines the message in a movie like Call Me By Your Name or Lady Bird simply because this is really the reality of America for most people. And it's powerful. It It's upsetting. I struggled to go to sleep afterwards. I, it was the first thing I thought of this morning. And I think these are, again, this is what I'm going back to this year. These are the movies to me that are worthwhile and, and worth interacting with. They're the ones that aren't necessarily easy. They're not necessarily the ones that make you feel good, but they're the ones that I think, you know, in this Time's Up, Me Too, all of this mo Black Panther, we're, mm -hmm. we're in a movement, and these are the movies I think are worth engaging with. Tom, is this the one that you think should have been nominated of, of all the ones that weren't? Well, I'm not surprised that it wasn't nominated because it is such a small and intensely polarizing film. Uh, even though it does, it is so feel good. This is a character who is so overflowing with life. This is not an environment that I think a lot of moviegoers want to visit uh, in order to escape from reality. Especially Definitely as the movie not. pivots to focus a bit more on on the the tragedy of this young girl's life as opposed to the uh, just kind of unrestrained ebullience. I think you put it so well. What is so great? about this movie. One thing that I want to drive home for uh, for listeners who may not have seen this already is uh, what kind of draws me to movies again and again is uh, the kind of visual innovation uh, that this movie presents. And this is not just a heartfelt story, wonderful acting, great characters, but the way that Sean Baker, another very young director, uh, creates the aesthetic environment of this pay-by-the-week motel on the outskirts of Disney World is is so exciting and tragic. Again, if you think about Disney World as, you know, the commodification of adult fantasy, you know, adults longing to be children, and then a few miles away from Disney World, everything is kind of warped into something purely commercial and sadistic. Well, for kids, what he is able to provide through a child's eye perspective here is as exciting as what Disney World is longing to be for adults. And the way that he frames, there's a lot of very wide, very still, very long shots where we see these very small characters walking against preposterous backgrounds, you know, buildings in the shapes of ice cream cones. Sort of com <laughs> commercial shot. strip architecture. It's shot from the ground up. I mean, everything right. is, is And yet the way that these characters experience the world is that this is the fantasy that they are able to realize yeah. their seizing of the day. But of course, they live in, you know, the, the socio uh, kind of economic reality that is intense poverty and that is inescapable at and the it, end. And it ends in media race and I don't want to give anything away but I mean the, the way it ends you almost think you've got another whole movie you're in store well, for Well there's a quietly it's, astonishing move at the ending uh, and, and it that that is really impactful I agree this is a polarizing movie but only, I mean we're only saying good things about it because we yeah. all loved it but it's polarizing because it's um, 
it proceeds in a sort of desultory manner. It's 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 not heavily scripted. It has a it has a, a documentary feel to it. I was reminded of Richard Linklater's film Boyhood, uh, and it, and it, and and it's sort of um, as as you said, Rebecca. It's shot from the ground up. It's a terrific film about the the point of view of childhood, and it's the point of view of childhood in which you know one thing happens after another. Sometimes it's a good thing, but more often it's it's not such a good thing. And yet adventure and discovery continue. Um, so there's a certain aimlessness to this movie, and there's a certain dreariness to it. It's a beautiful film. I, I, I really wish it had been nominated. I like it better than almost all of the other Me films. Me too. You know, Baker truly. has cited The Little Rascals, the original 1930s right. movies, right. as yeah. his greatest influence. And I think the indomitability of these Definitely. characters is very much you know, true to, to Florida Project. All right. Um, we're running out of time here. I th- actually, I think what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to have us take a break here in just a second. When we come back, you guys can maybe even, even sort of in lieu of recommendations, you'll just I'll give you a few minutes to talk about whatever e- each of you, whatever thing you feel we haven't covered yet. I do have to say that I am looking forward to the cold open of this Oscars telecast because <laughs> I feel like they, if they're smart, they're going to have Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway there. Before you even see Jimmy Kimmel, you'll see them. I don't know what they'll be doing. They'll still be going through envelopes or or something though. Some good writer will get them something to do. But, I mean, I think they should just open the thing dealing with last year's uh, incredible fiasco. Uh, All right. Let's uh, take a break here. Uh, We're doing the nose. It's on Thursday night. Uh, You'll also be hearing it. You may be hearing it right now on Friday uh, at 1 o'clock. Or you might be hearing it as a podcast. doesn't really matter. We'll be back. So most years I go to a big Oscar party on Oscar night. Tonight, uh, this year, I'm just going to stay home, make some popcorn, and I'm inviting Casey Affleck over because he's like, <laughs> what else is he going to do? <laughs> and he'll just sit there and go, uh, yeah, I think I might have groped her. Yeah, oh, her. Um, so uh, I have to thank a few people. Usually Wolfie does this at this time, but because it's nighttime right now and there's no Wolfie to do it, I'm mainly going to be thank- thanking Jonathan McPants, the producer of this show, and he's running the board for the show. And I would like to say, as uh, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, has been off for the last uh, week or more, uh, and uh, so the burden falls very heavily on Jonathan, and he has risen to the occasion and held the show together for us, uh, he and Josh Nalea, uh, the two producers. And he's just called McPants now. McPants, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's trademarked. Uh, at the, so anyway, thanks very much for that. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Marty Del Toro, which is the Del Toro you don't hear that much about. Uh, and uh, Amanda Fish, of course, uh, plays a small role in The Shape of Water. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, our final, Well, actually, if you're listening to us like any time before Friday night, we're going to actually do a Friday night show about obituaries, uh, and then we'll be back on Monday with a scramble. We'll get back into our regular rhythm of things. All right. So, you know, usually here we do kind of do recommendations or endorsements or whatever. Um, so, and we, we can sort of do that now. We have, but you can go a little bit long and maybe just talk about just talk, some stray points, some stray, stray Oscar points. points. What are, yeah, I'll give each one of you. You, you can each have, let's see, about three minutes each. So, Tom, you want to take your three minutes? Sure. Yeah. There are a few, maybe I'll, I'll hit on a few Oscar nominations that I think uh, viewer, listeners should really check out and then maybe a movie a movie that has not been nominated that I think is wonderful uh, so okay so going through some of the less prestige uh, nominations for documentary feature uh, I know Colin you and I agree on this one Faces Places yeah. made by the remarkable nearly 90 year old Agnes Varda uh, kind of icon of mid-century and uh, kind of just before and during the French new wave uh, of, of that era of filmmaking she's working with a very young visual artist named J.R. to create this, this very playful um 
and very heartfelt movie in which the two artists travel through the countryside of France uh, and they identify maybe the the overlooked people of the country, the the wives of dock workers and, and coal miners whose houses are about to be raised. And what J.R. does uh, is that he kind of wheat pastes these giant photographs of these people's faces onto the sides of buildings. Maybe the most touching moment is when this woman, the last holdout in this housing community that's about to be raised uh, because the, uh, the, I don't know, the mine workers are no longer there. Uh, her face is plastered all over this house in a block that is otherwise completely empty. And the inspiration that these people see, you know, very ordinary people, people not used to being the subject of documentaries, get from suddenly seeing their faces 40 feet high, you know, on the side of their homes, is it speaks to, I think it speaks to me, to the power of cinema, what we find so alluring about, you know, a, a face that is just, you know, blown up on the big screen that you cannot look away from just kind of immersing yourself in this other person's subjectivity. I think we should say this, is, at 89, she, Varda, is the oldest person ever nominated for a competitive Academy Award. It's it's wonderful. And it's it goes down so it's such a fun movie to watch as well. Um, this is a movie that I think maybe uh, collapses a bit under its own kind of giddy violence at the end, but Baby Driver is nominated for Best Film Editing, and if there is a best opening scene in the movies this year, I think uh, Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, this kind of action musical that opens with this explosion of a song by the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Or, uh, that, <laughs> I'm, not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if that is the correct band's name, but it certainly seems the John appropriate. John Spencer Florida Experiment. Project. Actually. There we go, that's what it is. <laughs> Like that, yeah. But uh, just a perfect kind of merging of, of of music, of action, of car chase, everything I tend to kind of scoff a little bit when going into summer movies. This scene captures everything so beautifully. And then the movie that's not nominated that I think people should really go check out, I'm going to go with a very small movie called Columbus by first-time filmmaker mm -hmm. Kogo Nada. It takes place in the small uh, Indiana town of Columbus that, surprisingly enough, in the real world, has an incredibly high concentration of modernist architecture. Uh, kind of like New Haven, my, my my home city here in Connecticut, you cannot walk around a corner without seeing a landmark uh, of, of you know, some someone whose name is kind of emblazoned in archi architectural history books. Uh, and this follows a young girl just graduated from high school trying to make sense of her life, trying to figure out where she wants to be in the world, kind of that longing that we see in Lady Bird and Calling By Your Name. And yet she has all of this wonderful modernist art to contemplate to help her come to terms with, with who herself. It's, an, it's also a very understated movie, but one that speaks to the power of our built environment. So Columbus by Coconata. Rebecca Castellani, you got three minutes. Okay, so pretty quickly. I don't know if I can use up a full three. Oh, don't, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I was going to kind of pivot away from Oscars and talk about a movie I just saw this week and a filmmaker I've just gotten onto, and that's Alex Garland. I'm a big sci-fi nut. I love what he's doing. I loved Ex Machina. Uh, that really turned me on to Alicia Vikander for the first time. She's amazing. My deep love, Oscar Isaac, is in Ex Machina, and also the film I just saw this week, Annihilation. If you're looking for a movie that's going to make you think and alter your dreams in a way that's akin to a psychotropic drug, this is the movie for you. It is fascinating. It is sci-fi like I haven't really seen it done before. It's very heady. I can understand why many people are leaving it upset. I've heard the reviews are kind of hit or miss, but I absolutely enjoyed it. If you're looking for a sci-fi movie that's going to push your understanding of sci-fi in, in more of an internal philosophical way than you've seen before, I would highly recommend the film stylings of Alex Garland and in particular Annihilation. Didn't Alex Garland also wrote the no write the novel The Beach? He did. Yeah, that's he a did. great he book. He turned into a, a film yeah. writer after he had a very successful career as a novelist. That was a very addictive book. All right, so you got it but three minutes. 
Uh, two documentary films that are not uh, that were not nominated. Uh, one is Frederick Wiseman's uh, film about the New York Public Library called Ex Libris. Frederick Wiseman has had a very long career. Isn't it, speaking of very long, isn't it like three hours and seventeen minutes well, long? Well, it is. It is. Um, <laughs> you and, would recommend uh, a documentary. Uh, three you know, hours. If you, you might want to do something else during it. Frederick <laughs> Wiseman's mo is to is to go into an institution and and simply do a lot of footage of every aspect of that institution's life. There's no voiceover. There's no narrative. He just pieces together um, in, a, in a, a sort of montage way the life of an institution from the inside out. So and I thought it was a terrific film. Also, Colin, listening to the replay of your show today reminded me the film, another New York-centric film, Obit, that was that was released in 2017, right? Um, I believe so. Yeah, Jonathan Wolf. Um, and and uh, it, and it's a film about obituary writing uh, at the New York Times. And uh, I've always been fascinated by obituaries. I have sent fan notes to obituary writers for for years. Marguerite Fox <laughs> just announced she's retiring. Today. She's, she's retiring. And 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 the film. Um, probably the best character in the film is the guy who's in charge of the suitably enough named morgue, mm-hmm. where, uh, where where lots of obituaries and materials relating to obituaries, many of which have been have been written decades in advance of the death of the person, are are kept. And it used to be fully staffed, and now it's down to this one last semi crazed guy who's in charge of the morgue. So that's called Obit and Ex Libris. They're both terrific documentary films. The other thing I would say is the best cinematography category. There are terrific films. Shape of Water is great. I also thought that uh, that uh, cinematography in Dunkirk, a film we didn't mention at all, was really very, very good. But but I would have to give the award to Roger Deakins for a Blade Runner 2049, beginning with the Shawshank Redemption in 1994. He has been nominated for Best Cinematography 13 times. Films that include Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, Skyfall, Sicario, um, many, many terrific films. I, I wasn't crazy about Blade Runner, but I think the cinematography is is it. pretty terrific. It's it's Roger. It's Deacon's time. That's like a it's Leonardo time. DiCaprio level yes. snub. Yes, right. You know, you wouldn't at least you wouldn't have other crestfallen nominees saying, "Well, he he didn't deserve that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> He's barely done anything." <laughs> All right. So um, one movie that I'll recommend, and it's it's still hard to find. It's a very difficult movie to find, and it's not any kind of masterpiece, but it was released last year, uh, certainly Oscar-eligible, couldn't be less likely to get a nomination. It's called Brigsby Bear, uh, and I think Stars with a Z now has it, if you happen to have that particular premium cable channel. I think they have it now. I mean, I just keep waiting for it to be I, – I it's, it's hard to find, and it is – uh, it's a very sweet, uh, funny movie. It sort of uh, starts out not unlike, uh, say, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with a, kind of a bunker situation. Kyle Mooney plays this guy who's been ra- being raised uh, in a bunker by two very strange people, one of whom I'd like to point out is Mark Hamill. I've also been under, under the impression that Mark Hamill can't act at all. Um, and I'm still kind of under that impression. Yeah, I recall a Star Wars conversation where you said some unsavory things about Mark right. Hamill. But but he's sort of he's sort of good at this. But he's not in the movie all that long. But anyway, <laughs> it's it's a very quirky um, and and it has a it has a lovely heart too. So anyway, brings me bear when it can you, when you can stream it somewhere, uh, maybe you can do it. I'm being told that uh, Mark Hamill will be a presenter uh, at the Oscars uh, on Sunday, so you get to see Mark Hamill uh, one last time. The the only other thing that I can really contribute 
contribute? Well, I, I don't. I mean, first of all, I think we. I've talked so much this year on the nose about uh, the Oscars, and one thing I'd like to do is thank all the people who are on the nose who wind up with all this homework they have to do. <laughs> you listen to poor Rebecca; she's thinking, "Oh, which movie should I stream?" Uh, and, Poor me. That yeah. sounds like a real first world problem. Right. And Carolyn Payne, who hates going to the movies at all, and we've forced her to go to like 18 movies this year. So thanks to everybody who goes and watches these movies. I, I today was not I had this really bad night last night where I, I ate something that didn't agree with me. I was up all night. I wasn't feeling too good today. And so I, I really had to like a day where I had to lie on the couch and I've become addicted to this series on Netflix called Rectify. I think it started out on some other cable network. It, it is uh, a remarkable – most of the actors are you know, probably not people that – people you might recognize but whose names you may not know. It is about a man being released from death row after 20 years uh, for a crime he probably did not commit. Uh, and and trying to re-enter life. It takes that whole question very, very seriously uh, and what uh, solitary confinement uh, does to people. But it's also full of all kinds of weird little religious epiphanies. Uh, it's a little bit of a southern soap opera. Uh, it works on like a whole bunch of different levels. Uh, and I've now watched, I've sort of binge watched three seasons of it. There's still uh, a fourth to go and my my interest is not yet flagging. So it's just called, have any of you seen this? Yeah, have you yeah, seen I saw Rectify? the first season. Yeah. I didn't realize there was more. I thought it got there, canceled. Yeah, no, there's Four, four whole right. seasons. I know what I'm doing tonight. Netflix. No, Rectify is right. I, I, I love the I knew if anybody here had actually watched that anyway. So um, thanks very much to everybody who came out, came here tonight. And uh, uh, and thanks for people who actually listened live tonight. Let us know on Facebook at WNPR Colin. If, uh, oh, that's actually on Twitter at WNPR Colin. If you or on the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook. If you did happen to listen tonight, we're always interested in knowing whether these live nighttime things garner in the audience. Otherwise, you're listening in the afternoon. And God bless here for that too. We'll be back on Monday. All armed with photos from local rotos, with their hair in ribbons and legs in tights, hooray for Hollywood. You may be homely in your neighborhood, but if you think that you can be an actor, see Mr. Factor, he'd make a monkey look good.